This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Those were lovely new uh, uh, worship songs that Hannah introduced tonight. We appreciate that, Hannah. It's nice to get some fresh uh, new songs. Ephesians chapter 6, reading from verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Uh, Let's just stop there. Now we come to the, the final section of this wonderful book that we have been journeying through this past several weeks. And I told you in our introductory remarks uh, that this book can be divided in several ways for study purposes. And one of the most simplest ways, uh, Ruth Paxton, uh, a tremendous speaker and writer, uh, gave this as headings. Uh, three things, uh, the Christian's wealth, And at the beginning of the chapter, it talked about the riches of God's grace and the riches of his glory and the Christian's walk. And we looked at five different ways that the believers to walk. And in the last section is the Christian's warfare. And it is this particular section that we're now begin tonight to look at. Now, in the recent history of the modern church, uh, the term spiritual warfare has been popularized largely by the Pentecostal charismatic wing of the church, so to speak. There are large sections of the Christian church that has little or no understanding of this. Uh, The the thought of battles in the heavenlies uh, doesn't even cross their mind. They're not aware of it. They're not taught about it. They don't think about it. Or if they do, they think it's weird and ridiculous and nothing that we should be even considering. Uh, However, uh, it's something that we ought to consider because it's right here in Scripture. And among those who do believe that there are such things as battles in the heavenlies and spiritual warfare, uh, then sometimes they can take it to a ridiculous degree. Uh, where, they, where there's demons and everything, and everything is blamed on the devil. 
regardless of our human mistakes and our foolishness and our sinful acts. Uh, and so we, we, we want to blame something or someone other than ourselves. And so we, we lay the blame at the door of the devil. But that's not always true. Uh, and, and sometimes we've got to realize that and understand that we are responsible for our flesh and handling that and our actions and our deeds and our thoughts and our words and all the rest of it. Uh, however, having said all of that, Paul in chapter 6 of Ephesians leaves us in no doubt whatsoever that there is such a thing as a spiritual battle that is waged in the heavenlies and on earth and often uh, we are the, the focus of that and we're in the crosshairs of that fight that's going on. And so we want to look then tonight at this. It's worth looking at. And, and obviously we're just going to start this this evening and then, God willing, we will continue. And so we, we need to see the, the reality of it and the ramifications of it, what it means to us in our, in our Christian experience and in our daily lives. Uh, those who are sincere about their spiritual lives, uh, who are determined to make progress in their walk with God, then undoubtedly uh, will come into times and seasons of spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. And Paul is encouraging us here in chapter 6 that, in fact, we are equipped for this that God has not left us defenseless in the face of this, that we are actually equipped for this, and we have a supernatural protection. We have the armor of God. And so that's what he's talking about here. And not only that do we have a, a, this defensive armor of God, but we have got weapons for the offensive, weapons for attack as well as uh, armor to protect. And so we need to examine this uh, beginning from tonight. I, I like what Warren Wearsby said. He said, the Christian doesn't fight for victory. The Christian fights from victory. If we're, if we're constantly thinking we've got to fight for victory, uh, then we're going to, I mean, it's going to be tough. But if your understanding is I'm fighting in victory, I'm fighting from victory, because Christ has already won this battle at Calvary. And we are the recipients of that victory at Calvary. So he has given us the victory that he won at Calvary. Uh, and so this fight that we're in, we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. That's a victory ground that we stand on as born-again believers. So perhaps that's why Paul said, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So that lets us know where we're standing tonight. That lets us know in this battle that we have got a place in Christ, a place of victory. The evil one is too powerful an adversary for us to simply handle on our own. No question about that. He is too deceptive. He has too much guile. He has too many resources at his command, for us just simply by ourselves as a human being to defeat that. We can't do that. That's why we need Christ, because he is the one who conquered Satan. He is the one who bruised his head. He is the one who overcame him at the cross. He is the one who put his feet on his neck. 
Therefore, he is the one and the only one who can say, behold, I give you power over all the power. I give you authority over the devil's power. That's what that means. Over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So even though we're going to be talking about this, it's not to frighten us, but it's to encourage us and bring some comfort to us that we're not in this battle alone, that we stand in this battle in Christ. But there's stuff that we need to do in Christ. So he begins, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. So Paul immediately uh, gives us the imagery of a Roman soldier, an infantry soldier. And uh, I mean, his, his audience, those that he's writing this to, fully understood what a Roman soldier looked like. They saw them all the time, fully kitted out, fully dressed for battle. And Paul, remember, was a prisoner on several occasions, so he inspected these things very closely indeed. He was tied to them at times. He was in jail at times, so he knew what they were like. And no doubt he asked questions and had a good close inspection. So when he's talking about this, he knows what he's talking about. So this is real warfare. This is a battleground. It's not a playground that we're in. C.S. Lewis said there's two things there's two ways that people look at the devil and devils. Either they dismiss it completely as a kind of a, a relic from the Middle Ages, <laughs> uh, but, but no real, just a myth really as, as it were. And they have that aspect. Uh, or they go to the opposite extreme and they see devils and everything. If a door creaks, it's a demon. You know, there's that two extremes. Whereas God wants us to have a balance in all of this and be wise and not be foolish about it. And so it is a battleground. There will be winners. There will be winners. There will be losers. There will be victors. There will be victims. There will be conquerors and there will be captives. And this is why we need the whole armor of God. The panoply of God actually means the full dress, the complete attire, everything, all parts are necessary to keep the devil in his place in our lives. Now, the Roman soldier was unquestionably the most well-equipped soldier of that time. Uh, highly trained, super fit, well-maintained, ready for battle at all times. And his gear, and we'll not talk about this tonight, but another next occasion, his gear was the best that there possibly could be at that time. And so he was a, a force to be reckoned with. He was a fighting machine. And no wonder the Romans conquered everywhere they went. Uh, no matter who they faced in battle, they, they invariably were the winners because they were so well trained and so well attired for the battle that they were fit and they were ready to do it. And Paul says that's the way that we should be also a force to be reckoned with. Now, of course, the, the armor of God that we're talking about is spiritual, isn't it? Uh, we're talking about something that's spiritual. It's invisible. Just the way the enemy we're fighting is invisible. So therefore, the weapons that we have got are invisible. They're spiritual. They're not carnal. 
but they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, Paul says in another place. And so Paul says that the armory must, must be put on, put on the whole armor of God. The fact that he says to put it on means that it can be left off. It's not an automatic thing. This is not something that as soon as you're saved, you're fully kitted out. This is something that you have to understand and you have to wear. And so it's a spiritual thing that you have to be aware of and actually begin to do, to put on the whole armor of God. So that required a responsibility on our part. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles, that word means the strategies. It depends what translation you're reading. The strategies are the schemings or the plots and the plans of the devil. If the evil one comes against us, he already has a plan, a scheme. He already knows what he's trying to do and what he wants to achieve because he is a schemer, a strategist, a planner. He's got an aim in view. So we need to understand that. Jesus said of him, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. So he comes against us with purpose, knowing what he's about, knowing what he wants to do in our lives and against our lives. So we should not be ignorant of his devices, the Bible says. So his aim is to bring havoc into our lives, to bring confusion and fear and distress and disillusionment and discouragement and everything else. Remember Job. Remember how God gave the devil permission to attack Job because the devil says, well, you've put a big hedge around him. I, I, I can't do anything because no wonder he serves you and loves you. I mean, look how you're protecting him. Look how you're blessing him. Look, look at the protection you've given him. God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take some of that protection away. And of course, the devil came in immediately. And what did he do? The first thing, he attacked his family, didn't he? He attacked his family. Then he attacked his finances. And then he attacked his frame, his physical body. All to break him down. All to cause him to be disillusioned and disheartened and discouraged and to give up. Even his very wife says, curse God and die. <laughs> but he didn't, sure he didn't. But thank God greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. <laughs> thank God for that. Thanks be unto God, Paul says, who always causes us to triumph in Christ, that is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, that doesn't mean to say, of course, that flesh and blood can't harm you. Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And he was flesh and blood. He did me much harm. And the Lord reward him according to his works, was the way Paul put it. In Luke chapter 22, just have a little, a little look here in Luke chapter 22. <coughs> hey, remember the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, at the arrest of Jesus. 
uh, and the soldiers came to arrest him, and Judas came to betray him. In verse 47, it says, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, which was Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. But note this. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour. This is the moment when the devil is going to strike. He couldn't do it before this, but this is the hour. But notice he says it's the hour of the powers of darkness. He wasn't blaming them. He knew where this was coming from. In fact, one of the ones who wanted to arrest him, Jesus healed his ear and Peter cut it off. Peter wasn't so sure. Peter reacted the way you and I would react. If somebody does something against us, we'll do something against them. And that was Peter's attitude. You've come and arrest Jesus, I'm going to cut your head off. But that was the flesh. Not understanding that it wasn't just those physical men there. There was something behind that. And it's the same with Alexander the coppersmith. Although he was flesh and blood and he did much harm to Paul, but it was the power that was behind him. And that's why we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Sure, in the natural, a person can come against you, an individual or an organization or whatever the case may be, but you've got to look beyond that and see what's energizing that. Why did they do that? They don't even know me. Did you ever get somebody in your workplace, you've never done them any harm, you never said an unkind word to them, you only ever were pleasant to them, and suddenly they turn against you, and you are the devil in disguise to them. Why is that? And they don't understand where that's coming from. You remember Jesus and Peter, and Jesus was, was telling them that he was going to have to die, go to the cross, and Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. <laughs> this is not going to happen. What did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. You savor us not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Jesus knew who was speaking through Peter, who was energizing him to do that. And so we need to understand that we're not actually really, truly wrestling against flesh and blood. It may be flesh and blood that we'll see first. It may be flesh and blood that will say those words. It may be flesh and blood that will take up a case against us. But in actual fact, it's what's behind that. Now, of course, if it's our foolishness and our mistakes, that's different. But the enemy can use that against us, even when we do wrong. And so, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The, the word wrestle is P-A-L-E, and it literally means hand to hand. Right in your face, grappling, wrestling. Uh, and sometimes 
in the spiritual battles, it's, it's hand-to-hand stuff. It's up close and personal. When the enemy attacks your family, it's up close and personal, isn't it? Sometimes you wouldn't care if they attack you, but if they attack your family, especially if they attack your kids, then it's up close and personal. And that's what happened to Job. Suddenly, it's up close and personal. If the devil attacks your finances and you're stripped of your finances and you lose your business or you lose your job or you lose your inheritance, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose. It's up close and personal because you need that. And worse still, if the devil attacks your frame, your physical body, and you're really, really under the cosh and your suffering continues, that's up close and personal. It doesn't get any more personal than that. Sure, it doesn't. And sometimes it's a man's calling or a man's ministry that's attacked. Something that you hold dear. And so there's this wrestling, he said, and it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Now, the Apostle Paul here, he immediately gives us a, an insight uh, into the strategies of the evil one. And he lets us know here that he is highly organized, that he has got myriads of demonic forces and that they are levels of command. Just as a general with an army would have strategies and would have companies and platoons, and the devil's no different. Remember that what he was before, Lucifer, the son of the morning, we'll talk about that in a moment, who had an extremely high position in heaven, So if I can put it in the vernacular, he's no dozer. He can deceive the whole world. And so he organizes his forces. No. There we go again. That's good. All right, just let me backtrack just in case that didn't get on that. And so these principalities or archats, chief rulers or beings of the highest order and rank in Satan's kingdom. These are his elite troops, as it were. Every army has got their elite troops. The devil's no different against powers, exousias, authorities, those who derive their power from and execute the will of the chief rulers. So they are below the chief rulers. The chief rulers organize them and assign them against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Cosmos Kratopas. Cosmos is the the world. Kratopas is authority, 
power. We're rulers of the darkness of this age, the spirit world rulers. Who are they? These are the, the spirits in the heavenlies that control nations. Did you ever think that there's some nations are warring nations? There's other nations that never, ever get involved in war. But there are other nations that periodically, again and again and again, go to war. They're warring nations. And you can think of some that you can mention ones at the top of your head. History will prove it. They're warring nations. They're a warlike people. Given half a chance, they'll go to war. What does that? What about the Middle East at the moment, where the nations with such vile, bile they pour out against the little tiny country of Israel that, that want to destroy them and nuke them and wipe them out? Where does that come from? It comes from these rulers of the darkness of this age. Uh, let me show you that. I know you're aware of that, those of you who've been coming here a long time. Let me show you this in Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10, uh, God sends a messenger angel to Daniel uh, to tell him about a vision that he's had and to explain some things and but the timing of it. And in verse, well, let's read verse four. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, his waist was girded with the gold of Ophaz. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and his feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Hmm. Therefore I was left alone, and I saw this great vision. And no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me and made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your face to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Daniel fasted three weeks. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is not a human prince, you understand. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to, me, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Michael is the warring angel of God, and he had to come. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. 
And while he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is there any breath in me. Then again... The one having the likeness of a man touched and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, let my Lord, and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come but I will tell you what is, not, what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And so this mighty warring angel had to come and break through these heavenly hosts, these evil, wicked spirits, these rulers of the darkness of this age. And, had a, and he, is the, he is the chief warring angel, and he had a fight on his hands to do this. It took him 21 days to do this. And he says, when I go back, I have a fight to go back because the prince of Greece is going to join the, the prince of Persia. And so these things are real. Uh, these spirits, these powers are very real, and they control and actually... Uh, energize uh, leaders and nations, even though they're not aware of that, against the hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, spiritual wickedness, that is, wicked spirits of Satan in the heavenly places. Apostle John in Revelation 12 uh, intimates to us that a third of the angels in heaven sided with Lucifer when he fell, and they were banished from heaven. In fact, some of them were put into chains, but all of them, most of them actually were loose and kicked out of heaven. And that's what controls the heavenlies around the earth. Not heaven, but the heavenlies around the earth. Now, this sounds almost fantastic, unbelievable, but it's Bible and it's true and it's real and we have to acknowledge that but the good thing is in Hebrews 12 22 the writer in Hebrews talks about an innumerable number of angels if one third fell two thirds stayed true and John or the writer of the Hebrews calls it an innumerable a myriad of angels. And away over there in Revelation chapter 5 and 10, John got the revelation and he says, and I saw, speaking of angels, I saw 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So no wonder the writer of Hebrews says it was innumerable. It, you could not count the many. So no matter how many dark spirits the enemies got, God has got an innumerable, incalculable number of angels. Glory to God. And those angels, obviously the devil copies everything, 
Remember, he was in heaven at one time. Those angels of God, uh, even there's a hierarchy of those angels. We talked about the messenger angel, which was probably Gabriel. We talked about Michael, the archangel. And then there was seraphim, and then there was cherubim, and then there was messenger angels, all mentioned in Scripture. So there's a hierarchy in God's kingdom. In God's domain, there's a hierarchy of, of, of spiritual powers available for us to help us on this earth. Glory to God. The word devil, diabolos, means accuser. Revelation 12, 7, 11 says he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses the brethren night and day. The devil loves to accuse. He loves to do that. Satan means adversary because he's the enemy of God and therefore he's your enemy too. He's your adversary. Lucifer means son of the morning. And he was cast down because of his great pride. He wanted to usurp the very throne of God himself. Now there's all kinds of, we're going to list tonight, but there's all kinds of ideas and thoughts about what Lucifer did and what he was like and so forth. Uh, many believe that he was the, the covering cherub, the covering angel over the throne of God, that there was actually pipes built into his very being to worship God with. So whatever he was, he was a mighty, powerful being that God himself had created. And so all those medieval pictures of the devil with a, 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 you know, a tail and, and horns and all of that there, the devil doesn't mind that. He doesn't care about people thinking that's what he's like. But at one time, he must have been a beautiful, mighty angel of God that God had created. But he lost that estate. And that's why perhaps the Bible says that he can appear as an angel of light. He's called a tempter, Matthew 4. And who among us has not felt the breath of the tempter on our neck? Hmm? Who among us has not felt the temptation of the tempter? If he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure he'll tempt us. Jesus called him in John 8 a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Winston Churchill said of Hitler, when Hitler was the Chancellor of Germany, he says, whatever Hitler's foreign policy is, you can be sure that the opposite is the truth. <laughs> And he was right. He was a liar. And Satan is a liar from the beginning. Jesus called him the father of lies, the very source of lies. That's what he is. 1 Peter 5 and 8, Peter says he goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But thank God for the lion of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> He's a greater lion. Glory to God. Hmm. You go up to the zoo and you see the old Leo lying there and he's well fed and he's lying under the shade of the tree in the sun and he's yawning and he looks pretty harmless, but 
if you ever went on the safari, and I've been on a safari and I've seen them in the wild, and when they're in the wild, you're in their territory. You're in their cage. In the wild, you do not get out of that Land Rover. <laughs> and you hope they're not going to come in beside you. <laughs> and they're not so well fed in the wild. You have to hunt for their food in the wild. Nobody's feeding them in the wild. And you would not dare, if you have any sense. Now, I know there's people who's lying whispers, if you want to call them that, but I think they're nuts. Anyway, I, I wouldn't dare to do that, but there you go. Uh, he's called a serpent in Genesis 3. A serpent, sly, sneaky. In Revelation 12, he's called a serpent and a dragon. And so these things denote his nature. 2 Corinthians 11 can appear as an angel of light. Can be so plausible. Can look so good. You know, sin, when the devil presents sin to you, he wants to make it look good. The fruit on the tree in the garden looked good. It was pleasant to the eyes. And it probably tasted good. And so the devil, to tempt a believer, he's not going to come to you with something that is so obviously wickedly bad because you reject it that immediately. You come with something that's subtle, that seems right and looks right and maybe feels right, but it's not right. And you think you're walking in light, and actually if you do it, you're going to be walking in darkness. But that's his strategy. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's the God of this world. He's not our God, but he's the God of this world. Why do you think the world so readily believes the stuff that they do? Because he's the God of this world. He deceives the whole world world. The world's buying into stuff today that 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you would never believe they would buy into. If somebody had told you 10, 20 years ago, the stuff that's happened today, you'd have shake your head and say, you're nuts. You're talking nonsense. Nobody's going to believe that. But they do believe it. Countries believe it. Governments believe it. Because he's the God of this world. In Luke chapter 10, I'm going to close in a moment. In Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus kind of puts all of this into perspective. And we need to have a perspective on all of this. Because now we're talking about heavy stuff here, aren't we? Remember Jesus sent the 70 out, two by two, and they come back with a startling report Luke 10, 17, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And once they realized that, then they put that to work. They were casting devils out all over the place. And they were excited about that. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan falling lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I know you're excited, man. I know you sense the power that I've given you and you can see it happening before your eyes, but don't get carried away. Don't get carried away with that. He says, rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Because you're saved and born again of God's spirit, that's what you rejoice about. Not that you have power over the enemy. You wouldn't have any power when I give that to you. That's to help you in this life. But the reality is, the real thing is that your name is in the book of life. That's the main thing. And so that's the perspective. That's getting everything in perspective, not getting so demon-minded and devil-minded. But understanding that you're saved, you're born again of God's Spirit. And if you have nothing else for the rest of your life to praise God for, that would be enough. That would be more than enough. I love what Martin Luther said uh, in the great old hymn of Mighty Fortresses are God. And there's one verse, and he says this And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. <laughs> ah, glory to God. Isn't that good? One little word shall fell him. Sometimes you just whisper the name of Jesus. One little word shall fell him. Every demon in the pit of hell fears the name of Jesus. They tremble at the very thought of it. And he is our savior. And he is the one who equips us. And so, God willing, as we continue on to this, we will begin to look at the armaments the weapons that God has given us individually that we can use and should use in a spiritual battle. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us defenseless in this world, but that you have well equipped us as believers to go through this life in victory, <coughs> successfully, <coughs> in the mighty name of Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, that no matter what the enemy plans and plots against us, if we stay true to you and close to you and if we wear the armor of God and the shield of faith, then every fiery dart of the wicked one shall be quenched in Jesus' name. So we give you thanks for this. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal. 
or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.